Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Taha Lokandwala and joining me today are Emma Ajaman. Emma, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. And Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killick. Rachel, how are you doing? Morning. Hello. So it's been an interesting week. I'm sure everyone has realised market volatility has returned. It's been interesting if you've got some allocations to equities, I suppose. Uh, things haven't been great, but have calmed down slightly this morning. But we'll see how that goes during the week. Um, in my experience, two things happen when you get market volatility. The first thing is that fund managers all claim that they predicted the fall. And uh, they will happily send you emails telling you how much they predicted the fall, despite the fact if you go through your inbox, there's nothing to suggest anything otherwise. And the other thing is they all, they all try to give definitive answers as to what has happened. And they always tend to be different, uh, which makes me think that no one really knows exactly what um, is happening. Um, but on that note, I suppose, Rachel, what do you, what do you think has been driving the, the market falls? this week? Well, I think at the moment there are a few things to be concerned about. So we've got these tariffs, we've got concern about the auto sector, we've got the Italian budget. So all those things are kind of bubbling away in the background. But I think the trigger, the reason the market's come down so much this week is very much what happened back in the first quarter of this year. Um, So back then, we had some very good wage growth data from the US. That caused investors to be concerned that wages would start rising more quickly than expected. Then they thought, oh, that's going to feed through to prices, we're going to have more inflation. And then the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates and that will bring the market down. So I think back then that's why we had that fall. And this week, I think we've had a very similar situation. So last week we had Amazon raising wages to $15. And I think people are worried that perhaps other companies will follow suit. That will lead to a much higher rate of wage growth in the US. And we know the Federal Reserve has said many times over the the last few months that the reason they haven't put rates up more quickly in the past is that wage growth has been quite low. So if that picks up, I think we could see a steeper rise in interest rates and that could bring the market down. Okay. The, the Amazon point is quite interesting because I think we've seen the bulk of this come from kind of tech stocks and that's been that's not just been the US tech stocks, it's been globally. We've seen the Chinese tech stocks come down as well. So is there any, is there any particular reason as to why these companies have been hit the hardest or is it is it kind of just down to the fact that they were valued the most at the same time? I think it's because they were trading on the highest ratings from a price price to earnings point of view. So whenever the market comes down, you tend to see a greater fall in companies that are more highly valued. So over the last few years, throughout the current bull run, we have seen a very strong performance in highly rated stocks such as Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple, all of those. They were trading on quite high ratings. And now the market's come down. Those have been hit the hardest. OK, uh, in terms of the, the kind of trade war and tariffs, um, a lot of people putting down the market falls to this as well. But nothing's really happened well this week compared to perhaps two or three weeks ago when you did see Donald Trump slap another another route of, well, another band of tariffs on China. And markets didn't seem to react then, like emerging markets, which have been have suffered the most this year because of the tariffs, seem to be perfectly fine. So it's interesting as to slightly delayed response. I think we spoke about it on the podcast that nothing had happened and we were quite surprised by that. Yeah, that's true. And I think largely that's because Donald Trump had been talking about it for such a long time. And actually the most recent round of tariffs that we had, the $200 billion worth of tariffs, that was actually a bit delayed. So I think um, Donald Trump had guided to the market that he would be imposing those about two weeks before he actually did. So by the time it finally came along, I think investors were ready for it. And that's why the market market didn't fall on the news. And same this week with the um, well, the, the trigger at the moment for the market falling, I think, is because people are worried about interest rates going up. But when we had the last formal interest rate rise in the US two weeks ago, the market didn't react on that news, but it's falling two weeks later. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, there's another thing that's quite interesting. Um, a lot of people saying this is down to, to kind of US 10-year bond yields uh, steadily rising. Obviously, that is a, is a main indicator of the kind of risk people are willing to take in markets. But the, I picked up something interesting from... Uh, 
Niall O'Connor, who's a manager of, uh, unfortunately, a rival to yours, uh, Books McDonald. <laughs> but he, he does make an interesting point here. And uh, what he said was, is that there seems to be a very strong correlation uh, between uh, the spread of U.S. bond yields over German bond yields. So that's uh, the, the, high, the higher U.S. bond yield minus the German bond yield and how big that figure is. So at the moment, it ranges between 2.1 to 2.4%, which is the highest in 30 years. But he also says that his research has shown that the higher that spread is between of U.S. spreads of U.S. bonds over German bonds, that normally triggers uh, an equity bear market. But the reverse is also true. So when the German bond is yielding more than the U.S. and however big that spread is, is normally kind of correlated to a, a bull market. I don't know if this is anything you've ever noticed or come across before, if there's any kind of merit in these kind of theories. I'll be honest and say that particular data point is not something that I've looked at before. Um, but talking about these sorts of correlations, I think that's something we're really going to start seeing change over the next few years. I mean, I think the current um, environment we have where interest rates have been so low for so long and we've got this very loose monetary policy, I think that's really skewed a lot of the correlations and a lot of the market trends that economists and analysts have previously relied upon. Okay, great. Um, and in terms of bond yields rising and you know this getting back to this or oh, above this three percent mark which everyone has always generally talked about as being this this point of significance in terms of coming back to something more normal uh pre-financial crisis what does it mean for the main asset classes that we're, we're kind of invested in it's like global equities global bonds emerging markets uk stocks and stuff like that does it is it is it going to affect these or should we be planning for something more I think you definitely should bear it in mind. So when rates go up, that does mean it becomes more expensive for governments and for companies to borrow money. So historically, it has caused a bit of a slowdown in the market. But you've got to consider how quickly you think the rates will go up. So yes, the 10-year bond yield has risen to about 3.2% over the last few weeks, and that's a lot higher than it has been over the last couple of years. But it's still very low in comparison to where it has been historically. So I think at the moment, money is still quite cheap to borrow. Um, it's a very important bond yield that 10-year US Treasury yield because a lot of corporate bonds are priced off that. So if that yield is going up, that means it will also be costing corporates more when they want to issue more debt in the future. Okay, great. Um, Emma, you've been uh, looking around to see what people have been saying about this. Um, back to the early point, again, claiming credit for predictions and giving reasons. What, what, are, what have people been saying? Well, some of the reasons that have been put out, um, ones, we've got an interesting one from the head of multi-asset at Royal London, Trevor Greetham. And he says the old adage, sell in May and go away, has some value. And since 1973, stocks have posted an astonishing 97% of their returns from October to April. And October itself is is typically the most volatile month. And so he sees this as a pattern, um, this sort of what's been going on in markets recently kind of fits to this longer sell of May, go away um, pattern. Um, and that his funds have actually been buying on the weakness and he thinks that investors should be pay attention to that old saying that you should be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful so that's that's one comment um another interesting one i i thought was from simon edelston who's co-manager of midwind international investment trust and likewise he's also seen this as a buying opportunity he says i haven't seen equity markets panic like this in eight years and corrections on this scale are like shopping opportunities and we'll be watching to see where things settle so he sounds quite pleased about it all no i mean i suppose uh, you can always look at it as a silver lining to every every case mm-hmm. um another one i picked up was um someone just saying that everyone seems to be panicking but this kind of market fall we've seen this week is what 
if you have been a long-term investor, as in before the financial crisis and in normal, well, I suppose more normal financial conditions, this is a normal week, isn't it? You're going to have weeks where you go down 5% and then something else happens the next week. It's just, it's called normal volatility, is it not? Or is this something else? Like, I think going back over the longer term, yes, it is a normal level of volatility. I think, again, because we've had this really loose monetary policy over the last 10 years, that has lessened the amount of volatility that we've seen over the past decade. And therefore, I think investors are perhaps a bit less used to having volatility. And they do perhaps tend to panic a bit more than they might have done in the past. But on the other hand, I do completely agree. 10%, I don't think it is something to be overly worried, worried about. I think it is a healthy correction. And even in the last couple of years, we have had several corrections of a similar size, the last one being back in March, not yeah, so long ago. Absolutely. Okay, great. So um, maybe maybe nothing to worry about and next week everything will be fine. Yeah, and I'd, fine. I'd also just make one more comment um, that when markets fall, um, you tend to find they rise very steeply after that. And actually the best days the market has had in the past have been very close to the worst days. So I would warn people off panicking and selling out when the market is low because then you're likely to miss the best days that might follow after that. No, always, uh, always great advice. Thanks very much for that. Um, this takes us on neatly to our next point, which is actually about correlation. So uh, the point you made earlier, um, that was, uh, was quite interesting. So equity market correlations this week have, have actually been quite high, as we may have noticed. You know, the U- it started in the US, it spread to Europe, Asia and, and the UK somewhat. Um, this is actually unusual if you look at correlations over the last few years where equity correlations have actually been quite diverse. But... Um, Something else has been happening to correlations more generally. Uh, Emma, you've been taking a look at this in the magazine this week. Yeah, that's right. Um, so basically, correlations between bonds and equities in particular have been increasing. And I think Rachel's point about monetary policy um, is a big factor as to why that's been happening. So um, as a result of quantitative easing, that's pushed um, up prices in a whole range of assets. And as a result, so many things are expensive, um, both in the bond market and in the equity market. And so we're seeing correlations between these two types of assets increase. Um, there's also been increasing correlation between bonds and other bonds. Um, and again, that, I think that's probably very uh, similarly related to the macro picture and um, quantitative easing. Okay. Um, so when we, when we talk about correlations, uh how how should how should we be thinking about this in terms of an investor? What what should we be looking for? Yeah, I mean, um, it's a good point because investors are always told to be well diversified, and the idea about that is that um, you want to hold assets that will perform in different ways. So, if one asset is going up, um, well, let's put it the other way: if one asset is going down, you'd like to have some protection. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, being well diversified means sometimes. Um, if something is going up, something else is going down. But overall, it should mean that your portfolio um, is doing well and it's, you've got a steady kind of returns. So correlation is, is useful because um, you're seeing how closely assets, um, how closely related they are in, in terms of their behaviour. So um, it's basically the, the difference between um, whether assets are moving together or whether they're moving in different ways. Okay, uh, and uh, so you go into this in this week's feature. Um, the the fact that everything was well, not everything. The fact that kind of government bonds and equities have become more correlated. What does that kind of mean for portfolio construction? I suppose I'll, I'll put that out to, to both of you. How do how do how do you think about this? 
I'd say it makes it a lot more difficult because in the past, you'd know that when people were feeling confident, they'd buy stocks and shares. When people were feeling worried, they'd buy bonds. Therefore, if you had both in your portfolio, when the bonds are falling, the equities would be rising and vice versa. So overall, your portfolio would be much more steady. Now we've got everything moving in the same way. Things are becoming increasingly interconnected, more global. Um, everything seems to be moving in the same direction. And it's very, very difficult to create a portfolio that is truly, truly diversified. Okay, uh, Emma, any any tips on how you can um, kind of go about that? Yeah, and I think Rachel's exactly right. It is harder. Um, when For my article, I spoke to uh, various people and there's some suggestions were to increase cash because, um, well, if interest rates are, are going up, that means the saving rates on cash are actually going to be better. And cash is basically the only asset that is truly diversified from any other type of um, investment. So if you're a bit worried about everything else, getting um being too similar then cash is is one option another option is to try and add more exposure to alternative assets so things like infrastructure um and renewable energy and they've just run on different patterns i mean renewable energy runs on um wind power solar power that's going to be quite different to what's going on in equity and, and bond markets no yeah, it's fair to say that the the correlation risk that we've seen in kind of bonds and equities hasn't really taken place in infrastructure and, and things like that has it so it's uh, mm. it's quite good uh, i suppose the cash is quite interesting as well i suppose it means that in situations like the the week we've just discussed it gives you uh, kind of something to buy with as well a bit of dry powder as it's better known mm, it does okay great um and moving on, what else have we had this week? Um, something interesting from the, the FCA, which is the, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Financial Services Regulator. Uh, investors and listeners may remember June 2016 if you were invested in an open-ended property fund. Uh, what happened was investors became very nervous about the commercial property market following the decision to leave the EU. And there was a run on these funds and... There's some kind of technical issues about how, because basically they are a liquid asset, so you can't sell them quickly to meet redemptions from investors. So some of them had to gate, which means closing off uh, investors in the fund and out of the fund, suspending trading, so nobody can do anything until everything has calmed down. But the FCA weren't exactly happy with how asset managers handled that situation. There was there was a lot of mistakes made at that time. It was something that caught a lot of people off guard. So they've uh, come out with some new rules. Emma, what have the FCA been saying about this? Um, so the new rules, the main, the most important one is that they want to stop funds trading um, as soon as um, about 20% of the value of the underlying assets in the fund become uncertain. And that would, as you say, become uncertain in times of market stress when we don't... Yeah, basically, you mean the, the value of the assets? Because the value of the okay. assets becomes uncertain. And that would be because we can't tell um, basically just the actual conditions of, of how to price these assets if markets are falling very steeply um it just becomes much more hard to actually figure out how much these assets are worth and that in that situation that's when you get investors as we, as we saw after the the vote for the e referendum um just wanting their money back and that is a problem for these funds because they're liquid assets that they hold and they can't go out and sell them so basically the fca wants to make it a much more orderly process where as soon as an independent valuer of um, the fund's assets says 20% of the um, of the assets are, you know, the value of it is looking uncertain, then the fund must immediately stop trading. Okay, that's interesting because that kind of, it flips it round. So what we saw in 2016 was eventually after investors went, I'll call it a run, but it's not the same as a, a significant run that you got like a Northern Rock or anything like that. Um, but went and run on these funds, they redeemed and then they gated. 
Mm. And it seems that gating used to be something of a scene as, as a last resort rather than what I suppose the FCA is suggesting is the first resort in yeah, the future. I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, no, no fund manager wants to be the first to decide that they're going to lock investors into their funds. So in some senses, understandably, uh, funds don't want to be the, the first to do this. And that means that actually it becomes much more chaotic. And by having this rule in place, the FCA wants to make it much more straightforward and clear as to when a fund is going to decide to suspend trading. No, good. It sounds like it, it might be uh, positive for investors. Is, that, is this a, What do we think about the rules? Is this a good thing? Um, I think that, yes. I mean, in terms of it causing a more straightforward and orderly uh, procedure it will be a good thing and arguably it will be fairer to different types of fund investors because there's some people who want to redeem their money in that kind of situation but there's also quite a lot of people who are quite happy to stay in the fund but um, if a lot of people want their money back at the same time the managers are going to have to go about selling assets um, to redeem the the people who want their money back and that is a problem for the people who want to stay in the fund. So actually, by having this rule change, it could mean that it's just more orderly and people know what, what what's happening. So yes, I think that it could be fairer, but okay. we could probably see this happen more frequently um, as a result of this potential change that SEO is proposing. So that's it's just something for investors to be aware of. Okay, the, the other thing... Um that used to happen is that these open-ended, especially the commercial property funds, the big ones from M&G, L&G and uh, Threadneedle, the, the ones that uh, a lot of our readers will, will own, um, is that they used to have about, I think, generally about like 10% in cash. And this was to me redemption. So the FCA suggested anything about this because it's a huge cash drag on investors' returns, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, so as you say, lots of these funds would have had cash. And actually, um, as a result of the what happened after the the Brexit vote, some, lots of them are even holding even more than that. So, you know, 15 to 20%. So that is going to have a big effect on the returns they're getting, um, investors are getting. So yes, I think that you're right. Like, it should This should mean that um, funds might not need to have that much cash because they've got this clearer rule as to when they would need to suspend trading. Okay, great. Uh, Rachel, you're sorry, a fund buyer. What do, you, what do you think about these rules? I think they are a step in the right direction. So they do give investors a bit more security. But I actually think they don't go far enough. And I actually think the open-ended fund is a completely inappropriate structure for property. The point of an open-ended fund is that as an investor, you can sell out when you like and get your money back. But if I'm an investor and I sell £10 of my fund, it doesn't make sense for the fund manager to go and sell £10 of a property in the fund. It's just not possible. And as you say, for that reason, these fund managers have to, have to keep loads and loads in cash and it's just a very poor way to earn returns. So why I think as a structure for property, it should no longer be allowed. I think the investment trust or the real estate investment trust rather is a much better structure for property. Why? Well, I mean, this is uh, it's an argument we hear often and it's a, obviously a completely valid argument. I'm just, I wonder why these these trusts ever became this popular. I mean, we're talking about 30 billion worth of pounds in some of the, and collectively across the industry. So there is a lot of money. So why why have people been so kind of afraid of the real estate investment trusts? This seems more of a case in the the kind of discretionary fund buyer space, I suppose. It does. Um, so I think because investment trusts are of a fixed size, they're quite a difficult vehicle for some very large institutional investors to invest in. So all these massive pension funds, if they're getting inflows of pension money all the time, it's quite difficult for them to put that into investment trusts because those investment trusts don't always grow to meet the amount of investment that needs to take place. So I suppose if you are a big institutional investor, 
the unit trust or the open-ended fund is a preferable vehicle. But they're, but they're, they're still popular on the, for private investors as well. I mean, obviously, uh, IC readers do, do tend to favour investment trusts for, for all sorts of asset class. But you do see it pop up, especially in the portfolio clinic, that a lot of them do own these open-ended property trusts, uh, property funds. So. They do. And I think probably the appeal of that is that investors think, great, they can get their money back when they want to. But sometimes, as we saw in 2016, it doesn't work. So I think, for my view, the real estate investment trust is probably a more appropriate vehicle for an individual investor for property. Okay, okay great. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, speaking of investment trusts, a nice little uh, segue onto our next point, which is the Smithson Investment Trust. This is the new global small to I'm going to call it say small to medium cap. I think small cap's a little bit unfair for this one. Uh, the new small to medium global equity investment trust from Fundsmith. Uh, it's not run by Terry Smith. It is run by two new managers. Um, it's offering ends today. It's been very popular. They've had to actually increase the IPO size. So I'm, I'm sure uh, plenty of our listeners have already subscribed to this. Um, but we, we go into a bit more detail on what's going to happen in the trust of stocks it's going to buy in the magazine this week. Uh, Emma, do you wish we have a quick summary on uh, what's yeah, going on? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the kinds of stocks the trust is going to buy, um, it's going to really focus on cash-generative software and technology stocks, consumer companies and healthcare firms. And that's going to be mostly based in North America, which is going to make up more than 50% of the fund. Um, and there's also going to be a sizable weight in Europe, about 40% in that fund. Um, in terms of the types of use, you know, it is more medium cap. So um, I think it's about what an average cap of about seven billion. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's going to be investing in companies with a market cap of between five hundred um, million pounds and fifteen billion pounds, but with an average of of seven billion. And that is more um, mid cap size, but it's much smaller than the average market cap of companies in Fundsmith Equity, which is £50 billion. Okay, yes, a a very big difference. So how does it kind of compare to uh, what else is around? How do we, I mean, obviously it's been popular. Um, Do we think it's going to to kind of work? Is it something different on on offer? Yeah, I think that it is something different on offer. And we all know that Terry Smith is obviously a very um, successful investor. He's got a massive following. So it's unsurprising in some senses that um, they've had to increase the the amount they're looking for. And I I think that, um, you know, it was going to be a popular fund. In terms of whether it offers anything different, um, yes, because it's actually quite different to the global small cap investment trusts that are already out there. Um, so examples are Edinburgh Worldwide Investment Trust and FNC Global Smaller Companies. Um, they actually have companies um, on average which are much smaller than this trust is going to be investing in. So that, that's what that's one big difference. And also the kind of um, composition that the companies that are going to be making up in the portfolio are different. This is more weighted towards tech, um, software. So it actually could be a bit of a those, different trust. Those real Terry Smith favourite kind of stocks that we, uh, that we all know and love. Um, are there anything we should be wary of? Um, obviously, it is popular. A lot of people subscribe, but there should be, some, I suppose, some things we need to be looking out for with this. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, you pointed out that obviously, even though it's got Terry Smith's name on it, he's not actually going to be running it. Um, and the the trust the trust is going to be run by um, two managers who are actually joined the company Terry Smith's Fun Smith's company quite recently um, from Goldman Sachs in 2017, and the lead manager um, has had some experience of running a concentrated global equity fund, um, but that only launched in 2016, so not too much experience. So, you not know. exactly a track record. Yeah, it, so. um, I mean. 
a lot of people, a lot of analysts I spoke to felt quite confident um, that Terry Smith knows uh, a good manager when he sees one. So um, I believe one of them said he doesn't suffer fools. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a sense that actually these managers should do a good job, hopefully. But I mean, it's, it is something to be concerned about. Also, um, this isn't the first example of a, of a sort of highly popular um, fund manager who's made their name in large caps um, deciding to right, open a, can't think a small, a small cap <laughs> trust. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Neil Woodford, who did something similar with Woodford Patient Capital Trust. Um, and so far, the results have, on that have been mixed. I mean, it, it is, as the title says, it's, it's, it's for the long term. He's usually about seven years. So we haven't reached that point yet. Um, to be fair to him, but so far the, the results from that trust have been a bit mixed. So it's just a warning sign to investors that um, it's not necessarily always going to work out with a star manager necessarily. No, no, people can overstretch themselves, which uh, I'm not accusing Neil Woodford of doing, but there's an argument there to be had, I suppose. Uh, Rachel, what do you what do you think about this trust from your side? Very excited about it. Big Terry Smith fan. I know he's not technically managing the fund, but we know he's been very heavily involved in the the assembling of the fund universe and the initial selection of stocks. He's worked very closely with the two lead managers on picking those stocks. And we know that the Fundsmith um, motto, if you will, is to do nothing. So we know that once they've chosen those stocks, they're not really going to change them. They'll just buy them and hold them. So in that regard, you could say, does it really matter that much what the two new managers are like initially if Terry's been involved in the original selection and they're just going to hold those stocks for a long time mm. um, but that said both the managers came in to see us recently and they were incredibly impressive answered all the questions very well so I, I'm not concerned about them at all um, and one more thing I'll say is that the first dealing day of the fund is the 19th and arguably that's a, a very good time to be launching given the market fall that we've just had yeah it's interesting so someone just made that comment on the on the website as well actually saying it was a fortunate excellent timing um, I, I did read the the kind of perspectives on this and the the kind of the, the the detail that they go into the strategy is is quite compelling in terms of this the, the whole do nothing that you said, but the mm-hmm. work they do beforehand it's, it's quite interesting. What yes. I find interesting the most is to say they they don't meet management. So I think we every time we speak to fund managers they they often brag about how many meetings they do a year, and these guys are saying well we don't meet any because it's pointless. Um, I don't know what, if you have any thoughts about which way it works and what you want to see from your fund managers? I think um, for very, very small companies, it's definitely worth meeting the management. Um, when the companies get larger and larger, I suppose it's difficult difficult to get as much of an overview of the company from meeting the management because perhaps they're not so involved in the overall workings of the business. I think it depends on your investment strategy. And we know that Terry Smith has a very strong accounting background and their investment philosophy is to, just to look for companies that have very strong cash flow. So the original Fundsmith Equity Fund, that looked for companies with good cash flow and the new one is doing exactly the same. So even though the new trust is focusing on smaller companies, the overall strategy is very much the same. The the ge- geographical spread is the same. The spread by sector is very similar. Um, so we, we're very hopeful that it will continue to do just as well as the original Fundsmith. Okay, great. Yeah, the cash flow analysis thing is quite interesting. There's a, there's a fantastic article from our IC's new columnist, Phil Oakley, uh, on the website and in the magazine to, to read about that. So that's worth taking a look. And it's, it's very similar to how Terry Smith uh, thinks about picking stocks as well. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. But thank you very much for listening. And please do head to the website and pick up the magazine for more on uh, Fundsmith correlations and uh, everything we've talked about this week. There's also a feature from Emma on healthcare, which is quite interesting if that's a, a sector you've been looking forward to. And thank you very much for listening and have a good weekend.